0: This programme was produced at and first aired on MPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand on air. Kapai Erarangi
1: Timotu, MPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property. Lovely having your company here today on the show this week. Uh, a little bit about first home buyers and whether they will ever find the money to get a home, and if so, where will they find that money for. Uh article about outdoor spaces and houses and how to use those. And also life in a vertical neighbourhood. We'll find out what that is and why young people are looking for solutions uh, in, the, in Auckland in particular where they don't have much gardens or grounds. And then finally we have a story about landlords and tenants at war, uh, which is uh, part of our Bad Landlords, Bad Tenants, part of today's radio show. So on this article that was on newshub.co.nz recently, Priscilla Dickinson writes that over half young Kiwis expect family money to help them buy their new home, Saver. Uh, The Kiwi Saver Advisor says so. I'll just say that again. Half of young Kiwis expect—I like the word "expect." You know, it's like uh, sort of like a hand. It's it's more than asking. They expect family money to help them buy a first home. It says that the growing number of young Kiwis are expecting the bank of mum and dad to come to the party with a first home deposit. Uh, a KiwiSaver Digital Advice Provider survey shows. So it comes as CoreLogic figures show house prices in August were up by a whopping 27% on the same time last year, making it difficult for 1st home buyers to get onto the property ladder. Real Estate Institute of New Zealand August data shows the national median house price was up 25.5% year-on-year at $850,000. So for every 100000 it goes up. Uh, first home buyers may need uh, an additional $20,000 how on earth can you save that quickly the experts expect the rate of house price growth to slow citing government housing measures interest rate rises and tighter LVR restrictions to be further reduced from November the 1st that's the one that's saying uh, to first home buyers or any people looking to buy and occupy a house that they're going to the proportion of people that they were, will allow to have smaller deposits than the 20% is going to go from 20% down to 10 So they're halving the amount of people that will be able to be or eligible uh, to get those loans. So a survey conducted by Kiwi KiwiSaver advisor saver of 204 Kiwis aged 16 to 24 shows over 80% expect to buy a home down the track. Financial help from family, personal savings and KiwiSaver were cited as the top three ways to get on the property ladder. Across this age group, 60% thought the average person would have to rely on family money to go to buy a first home, and over half expect their own family to pitch in when it comes their time to buy. So BetterSaver CEO Joe Taylor said the research is indicative of the Kiwi-she'll-be-right attitude towards buying a home. It shows the housing market is difficult to crack for young people, but it also raises questions on whether parents are aware their children are expecting help and about the overall financial preparedness of young people, he said. A lot of people want to buy a home, but most aren't putting themselves in a position to do it. And the bank of mum and dad is an option for some people, but isn't for all, Taylor said. It's interesting because as I... Uh, get to an age which I won't specify right here but it's an age where children are approaching a time when uh, they might be looking at these things you think well hold on I might want to use my money for something else thank you very much so we did have uh, an article on a show I think it was two two shows ago of how a um, young couple uh and used really good Tricks and tips to get into their first properties. So I'd certainly advise listening to that if you're a first home buyer. It uh, talks about things like reducing debt and so forth and what a massive effect that can have on lending. But anyway, I digress. So, after uh, three years of being in KiwiSaver, members can use the KiwiSaver first home withdrawal to withdraw most of their funds to buy a first home. Personal and employer contributions, together with the government contribution, which is a maximum of 521 per year. Um, or a minimum contributions of 1042 can help the balance to grow. So in other words, if you're putting in over $1,000, the government will match with 500 a year. So despite the first home withdrawal being an option to help people save a deposit, Better Saver said data shows 70% of young Kiwis have never switched from the KiwiSaver default fund, and that means they haven't actively chosen a fund that's right for their situation. So for the vast majority of situations, a default fund of KiwiSaver is not the right fund for a young person aiming to buy a house in the future, Taylor added. Nearly 20% wrongly assumed their KiwiSaver balance could only go up, and almost 60% didn't realise investing across multiple assets, like a diversified KiwiSaver fund, decreases risk. So it's important that young people check they're in the right fund for their situation and have a plan to achieve their goal, Taylor said. Among the survey's other findings were that four-fifths of 16 to 24 year olds depend on their parents for financial advice, less than half made a budget in the last year to help them save. A CoreLogic first home buyer report released in May 2021 shows the average age of a first home buyer is 34, after dipping from age 35 in 2017, and the national average has held steady at that figure ever since. So it's quite different now than it uh, used to be, again, without showing my age. But uh, when I was looking at buying a first home, you can certainly do that in your 20s. And now the average is 34. So according to the report, national medium price paid by first home buyers over January to March 2021 was $650,000. So based on CoreLogic data, a 20% deposit would require savings of $130,000. Now that's $13,000 a year for 10 years. So although buying a home can seem like a long way off for a young person, the benefits of compound interest, that is where you reinvest the interest, over time provides more opportunity for money to grow. So what does Taylor finish with? He says, do something now. The sooner you get started, the faster you're going to reach your goal. This article here, which was from the Homed section of Stuff.co.nz by Karen Heller, says, the new status symbol, a backyard that's basically a fancy living room. Have you ever looked at your backyard and thought, oh, man, I should really probably do something with that or I could do something with that? Well, this article would be for you, and it was written on the 20th of September if you wanted to find it on Stuff by Karen Heller. So she gives a uh, straight into an example. So Bill Polorius dreamed of a backyard Eden. Not your garden variety deck with stackable plastic chairs and a kettle barbecue. Why settle for that? But a loaded, super-sized, decked-out deck with an outdoor living room, dining area, full kitchen, bar... Oversized island, massive weatherproof television, elaborate sound system, and semicircular fire lounge. I'm Greek. I love being outside. I wanted to extend my outdoor living during the winter, said the 45-year-old dentist. His deck kitchen is only a few steps from the family's sublime indoor one. What else? A second dining area, a pizza oven, a mammoth rotisserie grill from Greece, to control the climate and moved, a louvered roof, infrared heaters, ceiling fans, and Mm. Vegas-level lighting – Leading to the pool area, Polaris desired twin-curved staircases because, and this is a common exterior design request, I wanted to replicate the inside of my house outside. Isn't that incredible? Here's another article here that says, Sean McAleer completed the Dream Deck in June for uh, New Zealand $480,000. Yes, (laughs) $480,000. So uh, Polaris is outdoor extravaganza sorry beg your pardon Extravaganza included landscaping pool waterfall slide hot tub and grotto grotto and that totaled um, somewhat more that was that was over 600,000 New Zealand dollars so why would you go back, go to the beach when you can hang out in a beautiful deck with a TV day beds and a refrigerator says macilia and there are pictures of uh, of these on online so that's uh, that deck in particular of, of McAleer's, he owns a company called Deck Remodelers, uh, that's an international article that claimed first pl- place in the 2020 North American Deck Competition, and yes, there are actually such things, and it became an Instagram hit with well over a million views. Uh, Everybody wants to come, Polorius says. Friends dubbed his oasis Polorius Paradise and The Resort. So, outdoor space is many things these days, but rustic is not one of them. Neither is natural. For many well-to-do Americans who aspire to join their ranks, the backyard has become the ultimate family room, a place to be decorated and tamed, a receptacle for stylish stuff while nature is held at bay. During the past decade, the article says, decks transformed into major design statements. Patios mimic hotel lobbies. Backyards are stage sets with dramatic lightscaping after the sun recedes. Pools, if you're fortunate enough to have one, are excuses for ever-proliferating furniture in conversation areas. And uh, the senior director of merchandising for Frontgate, a high-end decal company, says that they have a very interior design look outside. They put tassels and fringes on the outdoor throw pillows, uh, and um, in 2012 they offered a dozen coordinated outdoor furniture collections. But today it features more than 30 with evocative names like St Kitts, Palermo and Newport. So that company's called Frontgate if you wanted to look at them up online. Uh, again, this is an American article, but um, it's really interesting. And uh, it goes through, describes a number of properties here. Um, there is a Michaelia, the, the person that made the earlier and he does 125 decks a year at an average cost of 125000 uh, US dollars. So it's quite an interesting way to enlarge the usable square meterage of your house is to have this area that is um, an outdoor area as well. Would it be possible to overspend? I would certainly suggest that it could be, but uh, certainly depending on where you live, and how much you'd use it, uh, you know, that could be a real feature for homes. So that's something I've been looking at lately, not spending that sort of money, but just thinking how can I turn my uh, backyard into something that becomes a living room. Uh, there are much cheaper and easier ways to do it in this country. This next article talks about life in a vertical neighbourhood. The housing young buyers covet. This is from Ethan Teora of Stuff. So Oscar Sims lives in the Metropolitan, uh, Biggenden metropolis apartment building in Auckland City Centre, and says inner city living saves money, time, and the environment. You see, today's twenty and thirty somethings don't necessarily want a quarter acre and two cars; they just want to get on the housing ladder. And happily for them and the planet, dense developments on public transport lines are just what the climate ordered. And uh, so that's the rise of the high rise. You see, the, the government has made it easier, or as Actually, that's not quite correct. They're encouraging uh, the growth of high-rise buildings on uh, rail routes around Auckland. So Chimantthi Singhalaga-Fonseca has a different view than most. Rather than struggle to gain a foothold on the bottom rungs of the housing ladder, she rents a high-rise apartment with her husband in downtown Auckland. This means that at the end of her workday, there is no undignified crawl along a stretch of forsaken motorway. Instead, she enjoys a quiet stroll around Albert Park and then a lightning-quick elevated ride to more than 30 stories into the sky. That lifestyle, it could be said, is one at the height of urbanism, a life travelled mostly by foot rather than by other forms of transport, which account for 47% of New Zealand's carbon dioxide emissions. In that way, we feel like we're doing the right thing, the 33-year-old corporate affairs consultant says. We're not driving as much, we don't even have to rely on public transport, we can walk everywhere. It is density as another market of sustainable living. So the complex where she lives is not just any high-rose building. The metropolis stands 155 metres tall, 40 storeys high. It was the tallest residential building in the country from the date of its opening in 1999 until the Pacifica was finished last year. If I walk around the apartment, I can see right into Mount Eden, Uh, she says. At the moment, I can see Rangatoto in front of me, Devonport, most of the shore, the harbour, the port. And so she's no stranger to High Rise. She grew up until the age of 10 when her family moved from bustling Beijing to suburban Auckland. As a teenager on the North Shore, she looked up at the metropolis as a beautiful building, something aspirational. And since then, she's rented apartments in two other New Zealand cities, Hamilton and Auckland, before moving back to Auckland late last year. And by that time, the aspirational had become attainable, with rents plunging across the central city, in part due to the success of the Unitary Plan. But as with most tall buildings in Aotearoa, metropolis has a complicated legacy, as it is undoubtedly a monument to the gaudy excesses of the 1990s, a $200 million Xanadu which would eventually bankrupt its developer. And for all its beauty, a luxury apartment tower with Italian limestone marble foyer is likely to be the high-dense example which wins over the model's naysayers. So high-density housing has always polarised public opinion and city planning policy. I remember when I used to live in Sweden for a a length of time, there were many apartment buildings, even in towns and cities, that were quite small. So it's just a thing that we struggle with a bit mentally here in this country. So some failed high-rise social housing experiments in other parts of the world have cast a long shadow. But even when these dense developments on the rise in New Zealand, the concept struggles to overcome ingrained prejudices. The divisions are often generational. You see, younger renters want to increase housing supply and lower housing costs through high-density developments and medium-density townhouses. Older homeowners, meanwhile, want to preserve the heritage they previously fought to protect in the form of character villas uh, built on large sections sprawling out in the suburbs. And the reality of climate change, of course, only raises the stakes higher. Dense developments along public transport lines will reduce our reliance on, on carbon-emitting cars. In line with this thinking, the United Nations has named higher density as one of its core design principles for sustainable neighbourhood planning. And should you prefer a bit of local expertise, a New Zealand study last year found that denser, smaller homes can be beneficial for people in the country's carbon budget, and so density can be good for us and the environment. The article talks about or talks to uh, Oscar Sims. He's a bit of a high density activist. Earlier this year, he was elected secretary of the Auckland City Centre Residence Group. Uh, And uh, that's a sort of a progressive residence group. They want to bring light rail to Auckland and pedestrianise the streets. He says, how can you not be an activist when you're a young person locked out of the housing market? The 23 year old software engineer says. For him, those ideological stirrings go back to childhood. The Sims family lived in Singapore. His father worked in advertising until he was four years old. As a toddler, he was fascinated by trains, the family didn't own a car, and they just used the burgeoning version of public transport system now recognised as the world's best. At least according to a McKinsey report, which lords Singapore's network of bus and rail as one of the safest and most ecologically sustainable in the world. So his family also lived on the 11th floor of a modern apartment building part of a dense neighbourhood. And maybe that's where his predisposition has come from, he acknowledges. He says that there is default mind state in New Zealand, the quarter-acre dream and the house in the suburbs, but because I've had exposure to the alternative, I've been more open to living that way. The allure of that dream has only grown in size along with our houses. In the 1950s, we built homes that were 110 square metres on average. Now, the average housing size is 220 square metres, often with the same number of bedrooms. And the sheer scale of the average New Zealand house makes it carbon intensive, both to build and to keep warm and powerful. So a recent study found that new builds in New Zealand emit five times more carbon dioxide than is budgeted in order to stay inside two degrees Celsius warming. Reducing the size of houses, therefore, is one way to shrink our carbon footprint. The average apartment is about 100 square metres, and although it must be said building denser often involves using materials with higher embodied carbon, such as concrete or steel. And the current apartment stock sometimes doesn't suit everyone's needs. New apartments need to be built to the latest accessible standards in order to accommodate people of all ages and abilities. For example, an average two-bedroom apartment wouldn't be suitable for a five-person family or whanau who live intergenerationally. Medium housing options, though, a category falling somewhere between detached suburban housing and multi-storey apartments, could continue to give families the flexibility that roomier options such as townhouses allow. So Oscar Sims, for his part, rents a 42-square-metre studio apartment at the Metropolis. And he's funnily enough, he's on the 11th floor, the same as what his family did live in Singapore. His rent is $450 a week, and most apartments in the building are rented by couples who share the cost. And the benefits of living within the city at his doorstep, he feels, outweigh the final considerations. So, um, or the the negative considerations. So it's really interesting to to know how that goes. Um, There are 26,500 apartments in Auckland across 318 buildings. Auckland City Centre is New Zealand's densest area with about 12,000 people per square kilometre. Hobson Ridge Central, the western side of Queen Street, is the densest point at 91,000 people per square kilometre. By comparison, Wellington, the famously walkable city, fares less well. The population density is fairly low at nine hundred people per square kilometre. So, uh, really interesting to to see that the apartment buildings continue to to go up and to be popular. The Pacifica uh, Super Penthouse on top in Auckland on top of the Pacifica building is listed forty million dollars, and that's attracting pl- plenty of post lockdown interest from overseas. I remember. Uh, featuring that on the show some time ago, a full description of, of what that involves. But if you wanted to look it up, it's a Pacifica super penthouse. It's something really quite stunning. So the idea with the apartments is almost a bit like a vertical neighbourhood. Quite often you find that there are buildings down the bottom that, uh, or, or somewhere in, in, within the building. There are shops, etc. There'll be spas, pools, gyms, cafes and restaurants. So they can actually still have a community, a place where people meet and see each other. So then uh, I guess that's a little, little bit about that. We'll actually take a little bit of a break now. I think it's now quite a good time to have a break here on Property Matters. And uh, we'll be back after this little bit of music here. This is Dave Dobbin with Language.
0: When I needed you most, I couldn't find a language. When I needed you more, I couldn't say a word.
1: And you're back here on Property Matters on NPR, Manuatu People's Radio, te reo irirangi o Nā tangata o Manuatu. I'm Greg Watson, it's lovely having your company today. We were talking about uh, high-rise living, probably not directly related to uh, Palmerston North, but as I mentioned, when living in Sweden, um, it would, I noticed that in many cities and towns, even the size of Palmerston North, there would be quite a number of high-rise, high-density uh, living. Just something we don't really have in our mindset here. We're now going to the bad tenants, bad landlords section of the show, which I highlight a case or two, and today it's just one case. Uh, Here is the headline by Daniel Smith on stuff. Landlord ordered to pay compensation after son used chainsaw and floodlight to intimidate the tenant. So Hastings' landlord has been told to pay her tenant compensation after the woman claimed she was intimidated by her son. The Landlord Janice Forsyth allowed her son to live in a property in front of the unit lived in by the tenant. The tenant told the tribunal that he would turn spotlights on her windows, rev motorcycles, and use chainsaws late at night to intimidate her. Forsyth has been ordered to pay $440 in compensation to her tenant for failing to prevent her son from interfering with the tenant's right to peace and quiet. Now, under tenancy law, landlords are responsible for how uh, they're taking action against their tenants, in this case, it was her son, disturbing other tenants. The relationship between Forsyth's son and the tenant soured in April due to a disagreement over a shared space between the two properties. Forsyth alleges the tenant stole a temporary fence erected on the shared space by her son and the police had to be called to retrieve it. The tenant told the tribunal that in response to this, Forsyth's son screwed corrugated iron to the side of the tenant's carport, making it difficult for her to enter or exit her car. The tenant said Forsyth's son would grind and weld late at night, play loud music and shine floodlights into her windows. Also, I said the tenant was also guilty of inappropriate behaviour and placed eggshells and dog feces on her son's back porch. Sounds like a really nice uh, neighbours at war situation. In a tribunal hearing in July, adjudicator Tracy Lee Lewis ordered Forsyth to pay her tenant $220 in compensation and to build a fence between the two properties. But since then, the relationship between Forsyth's son and the tenant further deteriorated. In a second hearing in August, the tenant told the tribunal Forsyth's son had continued to interfere with her quiet enjoyment of the property. The tenant alleged Forsyth's son had shone spotlights outside her windows, parked trailers hard up against her carport, making it difficult to get out of her car, revved a motorcycle, and up and down the drive and operated chainsaws late at night. Forsyth explained the relationship between her son and the tenant was that they continuously baited each other. She claimed the tenant was short-tempered and would text and call her constantly about her son's actions. Sounds like a nightmare. They need a property manager, I think. Tenancy Tribunal uh, adjudicator Lee Lewis, who also adjudicated the second tribunal hearing, said that the relationship between the tenant and landlord's son had only got worse since the previous hearing. I find that the ten- landlord has failed to take all reasonable steps to prevent her son from interfering with the tenant's reasonable peace, privacy and comfort. However, the tenant wasn't blameless in the ordeal and she'd taken a disliking to landlord's son and contributed to an unsustainable relationship the adjudicator found. And so Ice has to pay the tenant $440 in compensation and that tenant has since moved out of the property. So there we go. Um, If you have any bad neighbour stories, feel free to comment and and let me know. Uh, It's it's a tough one with tenancy law, but there are ways to to take steps to prevent your tenants from disturbing other people. That's all we've got time for. This has been Property Matters. It's been lovely having your company this week. We look forward to bringing you another show in a week's time. Thanks for listening.
0: Support this show. And others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.